Why weren't there more gags in the Queen's speech? Will I get sand in my pants if I drink sex on the beach? You know what we say? If we can kick off the episode with a bit of grave desecration, we like to. Um, (laughs) So, uh, this episode, as if stealing stones from Canterbury Castle weren't enough, uh, we open with this confession from Davy from Maryland. There's an answer me this listener spree of stealing. Uh, He says, When I was in Paris a couple of years ago and visited the Père Lachaise Cemetery, I stole a piece of a shattered headstone from one of the graves. Was it shattered or was it shattered after you had a go on it, Davy? He says, I figured no one was going to repair that particular headstone. How well, that's do you fine know? then, isn't it? <laughs> Did they have like, some writing on it going, no one care? Uh, so far, I haven't been haunted by French ghosts, but only time will tell. Mm. That's pretty outrageous, isn't it? If everyone did that, it wouldn't be the largest uh, gravesite in Paris anymore. No, but then it would be clear for someone to build a car park on it. Well, actually, it would be clear for more bodies. Apparently, that is an issue at Père Lachaise, is they put multiple bodies in the one grave because it's so popular. I think that's very common in a city cemetery nowadays. Why would you do that, though? And He hasn't said that it's from a famous grave. No, well, he's being, I think, deliberately elusive about that. It probably is from Oscar Wilde's or Jim Morrison's, isn't it? Because why would you just nick someone you'd never heard of? Well, it's a souvenir of having gone to Père Lachaise. But, you know, they had to take away uh, singer Nick Drake's headstone because so many people were stealing bits of it. So now his family have no headstone. This is what people like you are doing! But if if the problem was that people were taking it, surely the solution isn't to take it away. I mean, they would have naturally gone away anyway. Well, you've ruined it for everyone now. Hello, this is Eve and Alice in Falmouth. Um, my friend Alice, she, well, she drank five energy drinks and how many? Five Pro Pluses uh, on Monday and it's Tuesday now and she just wants to know is she going to die or like have a heart attack or something. I think she'll be fine, but she's very concerned. It's been over 24 hours, she wants me to tell you. I thought if she made it through the first 24 hours, that's probably the real danger zone, right? Yes, I agree. I mean, of course, we don't know uh, Alice's physique. So we don't know how large she is, and that is part of it, because uh, there's a different ratio of how much caffeine you can handle depending on how much blood you have. Uh, 100 milligrams of caffeine per litre of blood is the threshold at which you could have a fatal problem. Jeepers. In unlikely scenarios, you know, that's stretching. Fatal problem. Well, you could die, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you could, could be lethal. Fatal is a problem. Fatal is, is a big problem, yeah. But how many milligrams of caffeine are there in, say, a cup of coffee or tea? Right, good question. Thank you. The average cup of coffee has 100 milligrams of caffeine in it. So, right. Uh, so one... you could die with five cups of coffee? Yes, you could die with five cups of coffee, but that's five cups of coffee taken in quick succession, and that's rare. So Mm. most people don't do that and most people don't die and most people have a higher tolerance, but it is potentially fatal to have five cups of coffee very fast. Blimey! Uh, A Pro Plus tablet has 50 milligrams of caffeine, so about half an espresso. Uh Um, So technically, so long as your friend hasn't had more than 10 Pro Pluses in a hit, she's unlikely to die. But five Pro Pluses and five energy drinks. Yeah, the energy drinks introduces a whole other level of uh, danger, fatal problems. What? Because <laughs> how much, how you've much, got glucose as well. How much caffeine is there in the energy drinks, then, typically? Well, that depends which one you get, doesn't it? Some of them have got taurine, haven't they? Or guarana or speed, not just caffeine. I find it bizarre that this is a trend that has lasted. Because um, mm. as long ago as when we were sixth formers, yeah. there was the beginning of Red Bull coming to this country and marketing energy drinks. There always were energy drinks before, but they were for sports people in tracksuit bottoms. They were very earnest and glucosey. Yeah. 
Um, but the idea of it being a fashion accessory and one that you sort of like the suggestion always seemed to be you take with drugs or instead of drugs when you go clubbing. Mm. That's something that happened when we were about 18, right? Or with vodka in it. Yeah. Um, and that's still with us. You think about other trends from the 90s, they've definitely ended now. No, a lot of them are coming back now. Yeah, well, sure, that's they come the back. the upsetting thing. Even those little chokers that look like tattoos oh, are coming back. Everyone's going to look like Princess Mombi. I had a press release the other day uh, about a perfect gift for Father's Day. That's and not the, CK1, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the suggestion of the perfect gift for Father's Day was one of those sort of beaded leather necklaces <laughs> that Brad Pitt wears. Ah. And I just thought the idea of getting that for my dad is so hilarious that it's almost <laughs> worth doing just because if I actually gave it to him as a present, he'd have to wear it for at least the day. Oh, that'd be amazing. Well, yeah. Is it one of those ones that's made out of cowrie shells? Yes, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, please get like, one for Amazing, amazing look for uh, any 70-year-old Jew. I don't think you could even see it if my dad was wearing it because now his head is hunched down so far, you can't even tell that he's got a neck. This is Joe from New York City. I just paused the podcast because I was in the park and I was walking past a reporter, a radio reporter, starting to do an interview. And just as I paused the podcast, she asked her interview subject to state her name and what she had for breakfast. This is exactly how I was taught to catch, uh, to check the levels uh, of an interview when I was trained to do radio in a different part of the country. And it made me wonder if this is the same thing all over the country or indeed all over the world. So Helen and Ollie, answer me this. What do radio reporters in Britain say to check the levels at the beginning of a recording? They say, tell me your sexual fetish. Of course they say the same thing. They say, what did you have for breakfast? Because it's usually an inoffensive question to ask. It's something people can answer without thinking about too hard, which is the point. Yeah, except I listened to a very interesting uh, podcast a few weeks ago where someone had uh, gathered a lot of these Mm. because for people with eating disorders, it's such a very thorny and difficult question. So some people who would answer it by giving like a very exact description of what they'd eaten that day and like Mm. the exact calorie breakdown and so on. Um, but I've noticed at the BBC, sometimes they just say, can you give us a few words so I can check your levels? And that so, is a very easy way to do it rather no, than steering you. I, I disagree, actually. No, I think the breakfast way is better because I think give us a few words, people freeze, people who aren't yeah. used to being on the on the record. But often I can't remember my breakfast or I haven't had it yet. Being concerned as to whether or not the person you're interviewing has an eating disorder, I think that would be ridiculously over-considerate. And unless, think, obviously, you're making a documentary about eating disorders. I just think there are other vague questions you can ask. No, but you can ask them what model car do they have and they might have been in a car accident. You don't know what their history is. It's it's obviously an innocent question, isn't it? I appreciate it might make some people feel a bit awkward. But, you know, they're accessing information they don't have to think about too much, generally speaking. Well, actually, in my case, I've, well, for the last 18 months, I haven't eaten bread, basically. So when people ask me what did I have for breakfast, I don't tell the truth, which is uh, two boiled eggs, celery and goji berries, because it makes me sound like a complete freak. <laughs> so what I say is cornflakes. The trouble with that is that it's only two syllables. You can't get an accurate level check. That's true, yeah. So then, short yeah, and then they say, tell me more. And it's like, well, I had milk with it and coffee. And then I'm living a completely fictional life. What were we asked in that context? What, what do you do yesterday evening? That's fairly easy. Uh, yeah. The other day, our friend Jim was staying over and he was in a bit of a withdrawn mood, a slightly cranky, sometimes a bit antisocial. And uh, so I said to him, how are things going generally? And he said, it's a general question. And I said, all right, then <laughs> who's your nemesis? And uh, I've got him good. chatting. That's good, but you need a certain calibre of interviewee to answer that. You know, if, you're, if, if someone's come in to tell you a real-life story about what happened to their daughter when, you know, they won the bingo, you ask them who's your nemesis, they're in a completely different frame of mind. They're not gonna, that's not going to make them open up, they're going to feel insecure then. No, I don't think so. I think you get people by surprise and they think, oh, it's all right to talk about my nemesis, I've bottled it up for so long, finally now, I can admit it. It's only fairly recently that I, um, the last ten years, I knew what nemesis meant, though. Really? Why? 
Well, it's just a funny word, isn't it? It's not a word that anybody apart from you would use in everyday yeah, speech. That's what I mean. But Helen doesn't even realise that she, no, there are a whole no, load of words that she uses in everyday speech that I would, people never use. You're just talking about me as if I'm not here. <laughs> but the point about this is that when you ask someone a question that they don't have to think about too much and you're just checking for sound levels, they will answer that question naturally. Uh, which hopefully is what you want from them in the course of an interview if you're making a documentary feature. Um, they're thinking, they're analysing, they're talking at their normal pace because it's not something they feel urgently passionate about, it's just an answer. Um, which makes me wonder why, at concerts, do the soundcheck guys come out and say one, two, one, two? Yeah. Like, actually, what they should do is come out and sing. Yeah. Because that mic's going to be used by Justin Timberlake. He's not going to be saying one, two, one, two. Well, it might be. Mm. Sure. There's some counting. Don't get me wrong. If 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 you are actually doing the sound check for um, you know children's BBC Live and they are yeah. going to come on and do counting, that's a great. Or if it's Gloria Estefan, one, two, three, four, come on, baby, great. do your sound check. Absolutely. Or five. <laughs> sure. But you know, in general, in general terms, I think the audience kind of want the sound check guy to sing as well. Really. Do you know? There's that yes. brilliant moment, isn't there, where the hairy ass guy in the uh, Iron Maiden t-shirt comes on at the beginning of the pop gig as well. And people start screaming at the front and then he just tries deliberately not to do any eye contact. Yeah. Must be quite fun. Well, if you're mm. the kind of person that doesn't really want to be in showbiz and yeah. yet you find yourself up there front of stage at the Hammersmith Apollo, yeah. You've probably not got the material prepared. No, exactly. Well, here is a question from Harry who says, for the first time in about 15 years, my other half and I had an urge to play the National Lottery yesterday, mm. settling in at 8.20pm on Saturday night to watch the magic unfold. Something that I've never understood. Mm-mm. I get the live lottery draw if you've got a ticket you might want to see, but the whole business of building an entertainment show Oy. around that, so Oy. fucking weird. Well, worked for Deal or No Deal, didn't it? Which is essentially kind of shit gambling. Yes, but you're Hour at least. Long. Yeah, but you're seeing the people who have a stake in it. Then you're not watching a machine and just knowing that someone out there in the 11 million people watching might have won. Harry says, "I noticed that the chap in charge of standing next to the lottery machines, the drawmaster, was wearing pristine white gloves. Always." Ollie answered me this. Why on earth does he have to wear them? Is it some kind of arcane vestige from another era when lottery machines were only operated by the butler? Does he have a skin condition? Is he off to a rave? I must know. I think people sort of secretly do know this. Is it because they, that's what um, the snooker umpires wear when they polish the balls? You see a little white-gloved hand creep into the frame take away the ball, put it back on the exact same spot. It's because if you think about sleight of hand magic tricks, for example, yes. and what people can do with their hands very quickly when you're not monitoring them, mm. it's, it's the very fact that you notice that he's wearing gloves that is the point. Mm. You know, he's drawing attention to his hands, so therefore you're more likely to notice if there's a ball in it or if he's <laughs> dropping something into the machine to weight the balls. It's trying to make it clear that everything is transparent and by the book and, and being done in a kosher way. That's yeah. basically the only reason. Do you think also maybe the drawmaster has ugly hands? Like well, this nullifies are, that, doesn't it? Exactly. My my hands are wrinkly. My nails are terrible. Mm. If I wore white gloves, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Mm. And also, the drawmaster's head is pretty much not a necessary part of the equation. It is all about the hands. It's isn't all it? about the hands, and actually, that that's true. If anything, the way that they direct those TV specials when they actually do the the ball draw uh, is um, it's very much about the hands. You you often never see a full frontal shot of his face at all. Yep. Because um, if you think about it, like often they, I don't know if they still do it because I haven't watched the lottery for about 10 years, but they went through a spate where like Jamelia or someone would come oh. on and press the big red button to launch the draw that week. You know, whoever was in plugging their new song would press the big right. red button. That red button is meaningless. It's not connected to anything. Oh, what? So whilst the camera's on the red button, the drawmaster presses the actual button, which controls <laughs> the machine. Why couldn't they just press the real button? Because then they'd have to go round the back of the machine, put the gloves on. <laughs> they could just move the button. What you need is uh, celebrity drawmasters. You need yep. Jamelia to be trained by Camelot to actually operate the, the machines. Are you suggesting that Jamelia is not capable of 
pressing a button without training uh i think there is probably quite a lot of intensive training to become a draw master because you need to be able to presumably i mean it would be a grand fraud if you rigged the lottery you'd need to be able to account for your actions in a court you can't just be, be a pop honest. star turning up and pressing a button i went to watch the lottery live once <laughs> Uh, I know, but that you see, having said that, I'd never watch it at home, and I wouldn't. I was, when I was about 16, just obsessed with the idea of going to see as many TV shows live as I could. It was exciting, wasn't it? Was it was exciting. Um, Peep behind the curtain. Exactly. And also, uh, at the time, and this requires a more lengthy explanation than will ever give time for me to do, uh, but uh, I was at school at the time selling a single on cassette of, of me imitating the headmaster. <laughs> Um, How many did you sell? I've, you got to number four in the charts, didn't you? Like about a hundred, and like I say, it's a lengthier story than we'd ever have time to include. But the headmaster was called Colin Reed. Mm -hmm. Everyone at school who was like in the know knew that it was me doing the voice, but they weren't sure. Uh, and all the younger kids definitely didn't know it was me because it was marketed under the name DJ Reed. Um, so I had on a T-shirt which I got printed on Carnaby Street, bespoke, saying DJ Reed on it, white on black, very mm -hmm. dramatic. And I wore that in the audience but I was like covering it up when I went in because I thought they might kick me out because I knew it was the BBC and you're not supposed to have brands on <laughs> is that so, technically a brand well I was in the audience they wouldn't have cared but I had um, like a jumper over the top and then when the balls got drawn I took my jumper off so it said DJ Reed and I was like oh my god this is gonna be amazing everyone at school is gonna see it Saturday night telly there are only five channels then this is gonna be a big deal no one noticed I'm sorry I'm just kind of blurry and in the background and like over Peter Andre's head classic only child thinking everyone's looking at you yeah I know Although, when we sat in the audience for a celebrity juice taping, you were wearing the most orange jumper that's very, ever been made. Very <laughs> bright orange jumper. Every time they cut to the audience, there we were, yeah. <laughs> looking like we wanted to disappear. Yeah. And instead, we were sitting at the front with you wearing, effectively, a traffic cone on your body. <laughs> if you've got a question... Then email your question to want to be this podcast at googlemail.com. Want to be this podcast at googlemail.com. Want to be this podcast at googlemail.com. Here's a question from C, who says, A few months ago, while on holiday with my boyfriend, I was woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of an alarm from my boyfriend's dad's iPad that we'd borrowed. Okay. My boyfriend didn't wake from this, so I had to get up and turn it off. And in my tired state, I instinctively swiped across the screen to silence the noise. I wouldn't say that's really instinctive. That is what you have to do, isn't it? To if silence it, an alarm, if an yes. If iPad an iPad's making a noise, you have to swipe it. Yeah. yeah. You've done nothing wrong here so far, C. Don't beat yourself up. Unbeknownst to me, uh -huh. C, the noise was not an alarm, but it was in fact an alert signalling that an email had just been received. Uh -huh. And by swiping the screen, it had taken me straight to the email. Did you inadvertently end up buying stock in Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> that could appreciate. Uh, without meaning to, I read the message that was sent to my boyfriend's father... It was from a female. Oh, I see where this is going now. I don't like it when people use female as a noun. No, I don't like that either. Sorry, yeah. C. I mean, I know this is an aside to your very serious yes. question, but it grosses me out. I, I agree. And I, I, I almost correct my callers to LBC when they yeah. say it. They're like, I was in a bar the other day and the female that was there said, it's like, what, what you, you know, they're female not different what? species. <laughs> yeah, It's, it's very dehumanising, it is, isn't it? It is, indeed. Not I agree. Human. It's yeah. all right if David Attenborough does it and he's talking about ants. Yeah. I equally don't particularly like it when people call me gents. 
You know, if I arrive with a group of men and someone says, all right, gents. Too toilety. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. The message was from a female woman mm. and, uh, <laughs> and it basically said, thank you for the lovely sex. Oh, God. It was from Bruno Mars. <laughs> <laughs> to my horror, there were dozens of messages back and forth, all with a similar theme. Yeah, well, I think if the email chain is, is, is about the lovely sex, it's unlikely that they're going to have a different theme mm. further back in the chain. Thank you for the average recipes. sex last night. Yeah, yeah. Not up to your usual par. Uh, I've, I've prepared a graph. Could be a spammer. I've had a lot of thanks for the oh, lovely yeah. sex from uh, busty Russian women that I've never met. Okay, well, let's hold on to that hope mm. as we yeah, uh, continue yeah. to read this uh, email of woe. C says, I did not read them, but I could not help seeing what nature they were as they all appeared on screen before I realised exactly what I was looking at. I can imagine this being in the middle of the night. This is a really surreal experience. Mm. Isn't it? You've well, just been woken up and then you see this quite shocking detail well that's what c says i immediately switched the ipad off and went straight back to sleep with the hopes of forgetting all about this when i woke in the morning i wasn't sure if i dreamt what i saw and i tried to forget about it but i couldn't get it out of my mind until i was certain that i'd seen what i thought i'd seen right i looked at the emails again so you shouldn't have done that although i still didn't read them i promise Mm. and they were all there confirming this wasn't some awful dream see i understand why you felt that way but you shouldn't have turned the ipad back on and looked it's not your ipad you weren't supposed to see that mm. you've now become complicit uh, i mm. would say by by actively choosing to read them rather than reading them by accident if only you turned off notifications god none of this would ever have happened indeed if i lent my ipad to anyone it would uh, wake them up and then rely constantly to tell them that Lindsay mastis is doing a periscope i don't know who Lindsay <laughs> mastis is but apparently i follow her on twitter and she's always on fucking periscope what's a periscope it's a new uh, thing that the children like, Martin. We'll, we'll do it another day, Martin. I'll tell you what, we'll do it in two years' time. We'll go, oh, remember Periscope? That was shit, wasn't it? We'll do it then. It's like Vine, but live. Oh, right, okay. It's like FaceTime, but for the world. Sounds awful. It's like YouTube, but for twats. It's like tiny little nuggets of exhibitionism, Martin. Not like this. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I never said anything to my boyfriend or anyone else for that matter, says C, as I know if I did, it would cause a lot of pain to him and his family. But now I'm not so sure if I've done the right thing. If my boyfriend was cheating on me, I would want to know, despite the pain it would cause, and I feel that his mother has the right to know. Possibly. However, I really get along with both his dad and his mum, and my boyfriend is extremely close to his dad, so I know this would destroy him and her if they ever found out. You don't know that. You think you know that. Despite this, I feel guilty, especially every time I see her. There's no question. There's no question. This, is there? No, there's no question. There's just have... a lot of pain. So the implicit answer me this, Ollie, I think, is what do I do? Um, Nothing. Stay clear of this. Steer clear. Pretend it didn't happen. Block it out. La la la. Fingers and ears. Get your own iPads. Yeah. (laughs) Get an alarm clock. Get a travel alarm clock from Boots. They're four quid. Is is it possible that your boyfriend's mum does a kind of role playing exercise where she's got a, a, a fake email account so they can send each other saucy messages? Well, uh, that's probably a stretch, although that is possible. Is but it... what, what you don't know is that it would destroy her if she found out. What you don't know is that she doesn't know already. Or that they might have an open relationship. That's unlikely. It's possible. I know, but you always fall back on that. And let's be honest, Just how many case. people actually have open Just relationships? Just in case. I think the truth is they probably don't have an op- open relationship. And you, probably your instinct is right that the mother doesn't know. But you don't know that. And it's not your role to do anything about it. I think if he, your father-in-law had told you, well, boyfriend's dad, what do you call that? Prospective father outlaw. father-in-law. Father outlaw. <laughs> okay, father outlaw. If, if your father outlaw had told you he was having an affair, mm. then he's put onto you, by being a prick, a dilemma. He's put onto you, do I tell uh, my boyfriend and do I therefore end up revealing it to his wife? But he hasn't told you. This was clearly an accident. Yeah, but the problem is you're forcing somebody to lie. 
No, you're not. With your own neglect. No, I think you are, because I've been in this position where I kind of had to lie to Martin because I'd made an obligation to a friend. And then I was like, no, fuck this. You can't put me in a position where I have to lie to my husband. No, but you don't have to lie because this isn't going to come up. Uh, your boyfriend is not going to say, so do you think my dad's having an affair? You're, no, but you're always going to know. And if he does ever find out that you knew for he years. Won't. But he could. This guy's being so careless that she found out in the middle of the night by accident. It's so easy for someone else to find out. And when they do, C will look implicit, even though C has done nothing wrong. I think maybe you have to talk to the dad and say, look, this email came up on the iPad. No, no, Be more no. discreet. And also, this makes me very uncomfortable uh, in my relationship with your son but and then, your wife. Fine, but then every mealtime, every Christmas is going to be awkward. She is going to feel that anyway. Yeah, she can feel it, but she can put on a party face and no one will realise. If she says it, She's. it could all end up imploding and then she will be the bad guy, not the dad for having the affair. She already feels like the bad guy. Yes, so exactly. I, I, so what's the difference? By saying anything, she's definitely going to be the bad guy. By internalising it, <laughs> she's going to feel like it, but she's not going to actually create a, an issue. Well, I think the main thing is she needs to get it out of her head. She needs to tell someone else. So well done, C. You've done that. You've told us. You know, you've shared it with someone. Because I feel that if I have the the burden of someone else's uh, lies and secrets, I feel like I need to tell someone. But yeah. I don't think it's the right thing to tell the people who are going to be most affected by it when you found out by accident. By withholding the truth, you feel like a liar. So yeah, but she'd feel like a dick if she broke apart the family. That's worse. No, I'm not, not telling her to break apart the family. I'm telling are, her to talk to the dad and tell him to cover up his iPad better. What happens if in six months' time the boyfriend or the mother comes to her and says, do you think he's having a phone? And she goes, oh, yeah, I've known about it for six months. Yeah. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Because yes. then these things usually come out. I don't know. I mean, how good are these people? Well, well she could say home? then... I had my suspicions because in the middle of the night I saw the mm. email. The fact that she went back on to check, as I said right from the beginning, that makes a, her complicit. Nevertheless, she's she's done that now. Yeah, but had she not done that, she could have she could have said in all honesty, "Oh yeah, I did have my suspicion, but I thought it was a dream." I don't think uh, I don't think your position makes sense. So if he'd if he'd told her, she should have said something. But if as she's then she'd out, be lying. She'd be covering as, it up. As she's found out by accident. Yes, she shouldn't. So the difference is Correct. what. In this situation, he owes, she owes him something, but in the other situation, she wouldn't. She has some obligation to him because he didn't volunteer the information. I don't think that makes any sense. It does make sense because it, he would be choosing in the former situation to involve her. She's become involved by accident. And although she feels bad now, she's going to feel worse if anything happens as a result of her piping up about yeah, it. Yeah, well, that's why she has to talk to the dad, because it's much more likely to come out if he is still so technologically lax. OK, sometimes it's good we disagree. Well, I think it's healthy we have a different opinion on this. I think, I think your opinion's very unhealthy. I think by talking to the dad, she's going to feel worse, not better, and she's going to make him feel worse as well. Martin, if I knew that one of your parents was having an affair, would you want me to tell you? You would be upset if you felt I'd been keeping that from you, wouldn't you? I'd, um, yeah, I would. I don't know what I'd want. But if I found out the, the opposite, I would have to tell you. Like, I couldn't not tell you. I just wouldn't be able to keep something like that secret. I think this has been very emotional. And now we need to take a break for the intermission, which is uh, from one of our vintage episodes of Answer Me This. And you can buy our classic episodes from our website, answermethisstore.com. And today's intermission is one of my favourite calls that we've ever received to the podcast, uh, featured in Answer Me This, episode 82. Hello, this is Wayne from Blaine, Maine, in the USA. No kidding. I love this guy already. I really hope that's true. Do you think that really is true? He said no kidding, Martin. No oh, kidding yeah. holds If America says no kidding, that's like the proposal of marriage. <laughs> my question is this. How come you British people get to say all these great words like bollocks, Fortnite, brilliant, mate, wanker, bonnet, tosser, beastly, sod, bugger, quid and todger. 
But if we Americans try to say that, we sound like total idiots. Okay, uh, you can carry on the podcast. I'm just going to go down to my room and listen to that on a loop for the next 20 hours. <laughs> to the American with Tourette. Bollocks. <laughs> Sad. Fortnite. <laughs> yeah, Fortnite and Bonnet aren't in that list, are Do you they? think he thinks that quid and bonnet are swear words? Elizabeth has a question of beards. Uh, she says, Helen, answer me this. Uh, yeah, that's right, Martin. Beards. Mm. He's Ooh. literally stroking his. That's I, think, what he's I think I can help with this. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I'm not sure you can, actually, because oh. thankfully, I don't think you've ever fallen prey to the particular kind of beard she's about to describe. Well, that's just her. Um, Is it one of those ones that's a dreadlock with a bead on the end? <laughs> and that's the only bit of facial hair. <laughs> Now that is a look that I would pay for Martin to have. That's a look that I would pay for a divorce over. <laughs> Helen, answer me this. Are goatees called goatees because they look like the little beards that goats grow? Yes. Yeah. Goats don't grow... When these goats grow them as if goats have a choice about, you know, a style uh, decision that they're making, goats have. Goats don't be like, I'm going to grow a little beard today. Well, they might. I can't see into the mind of a goat. Well, they all go for it, if that's true. Yeah, well, the fashion has remained steady in the goat, uh, goat world. They're like East London hipsters in their beard conformism. Mm-hmm. Goats are pretty inscrutable, aren't they? I can't look can't into tell. the eyes of a goat and see what they're thinking with their funny letterbox eyes. Beards on men, I, it's not as bad as you know I have my belly button distaste. Yeah, you've um, got borderline phobia. I've got a phobia of belly buttons, particularly protruding ones. Mm-hmm. It, even on the most beautiful model, like it can put me off. Uh, beards is one of those things I just I think there are so many scabby ones Mm -hmm. Uh, Martin yours is perfectly pleasant actually well because it's got good coverage I think if it was sort of patchy in bits then you're all too conscious of the follicles yeah I think that's it the the goatee in particular to me a shaved it's because it's um, sort of manicured yes yes it is it is like a shaved pubis on your chin (laughs) that is why it makes me feel a bit queasy Uh, apparently a goatee that incorporates a moustache is technically supposed to be called a van dyke after the 17th century Flemish painter not after Dick. Well, did don't he recall have... him ever having a goatee. No, probably when he played one of his many characters, which of course you never would have known it was him, apart from the fact they all spoke the same and had the same mannerisms. Maybe he was wearing a beard for other them. Other than that, though, other no. than that, flawless comic performances. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what's it called when it's like a moustache and a, and a chin beard, yeah. and then a, a sort of beard that goes around the sideburn and then along the jawline to meet up? Because uh, I used to have one of those. So that's like a goatee and a chin strap. In one, or a Van Dyke chin strap, a Van Strap. A Van Strap. That sounds like I'm in the sound of music. You're just a twat, though, aren't you? So you've just shaved your cheeks and nothing else. Yeah, so much. I'm a neck. Cheeks and neck. So just a very thin beard line along the bottom. Diabolical. I look like uh, I was in a new metal band. <laughs> I think goatees are a little bit midlife crisis as well. I mean, even when seventeen. <laughs> well, when I think of celebrities that have had them, you know, like Brad Pitt, uh, Will Smith, Leo DiCaprio. It tends yeah. to be when they're just past the point where they could any longer look boyish. Mm. And then they're like, right, I'm going to grow a goatee. It's almost like saying, well, I know I'm middle-aged, so uh, I'm going to just look a bit desperate now. But it's taking the emphasis off their uh, jawline, I suppose. Mm. And Travolta. Oh. Does Travolta have a goatee? I associate him with having a soul patch. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I didn't know what this was. Elizabeth's second question is, Helen, answer me this. Where did the term soul patch come from? I've never heard that term so, before. So soul patch is that bit that's like a little merkin just under the middle of your lip <laughs> oh, and yeah. no other beard. It's really, really twatty. I used to have one of this. Did well, you? you're a yeah. real twat. It was brilliant. I loved having a... But we didn't call it a soul patch, we called it an imperial. Apparently a longer soul patch is meant to be called an imperial and the other term for a soul patch is a moosh. A moosh? Yeah. I don't like that, that very much. Well, tough. But there's a great term for a soul patch uh, from where it originated. Okay. Now, one of the pioneers of the soul patch, 
the one who really seemed to bring it to uh, popular use uh, was Dizzy Gillespie. Famous for his song Bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> um, he had one, he sometimes had a moustache with the soul patch. I don't know what that combination is called, a semi Van Dyke or something, but sometimes he just had the soul patch. And at that time, it was known as the jazz dab. Amazing. Jazz dab. <laughs> That's a great word. For some brass players, having uh, a bit of facial hair softened the uh, mouthpiece against their skin because uh, you know it's quite a it's quite a hard instrument to play really? uh, so maybe that's why he has a jazz dab. Uh, so anyway um the association with jazz and then beatnik culture engendered the soul patch i think that was the kind of sardonic term for it i think one of the first written instances is in national lampoon in the 80s mm-hmm. uh, where they call it a soul patch so they're taking the piss aren't they all this talk about jazz dabs <laughs> and soul patches uh, is making me a bit queasy and I think this is I'm getting to the roots of what the beard anti-fetish might be mm. I think weirdly it might be linked to the belly button thing I think oh. it actually is because if you think about belly buttons male belly buttons you often have that trail of hair don't you mm. down the happy to the trail. Pubis, yeah and I think the soul patch reminds me a little bit of that yes that's well, what that it look. looks like doesn't it it looks like a trail of hair leading down to a cock so really you're afraid of cocks uh maybe that's partly what's going on i don't know i can't explain uh, mrs freud what is happening in my head <laughs> but uh maybe the two phobias are linked yeah a question of music and penises now from nate who says uh, i heard an erection described as having a stonk on good for you uh so helen answer me this is that what the 1990s Red Nose Day song, the Stonk song, was about? Uh, you remember this is Hale and Pace's charity song from the 90s. I do remember this. Put good the song. red nose on your conk and let's let stonk. It's quite good. I watched the video today, actually. But Nate says, if that is the case, WTF. Surely people shouldn't use an erection to raise anything other than the flag of romance, really, let alone money for sick children. I don't think it was about erections i disagree do you Do you know i'd forgotten because obviously i was like eight when it came out so of course this didn't occur to me and i think that's crucial here you know if there's a double meaning children weren't aware of it really no there's there's a lot of self-censorship like in greece you don't realize how filthy greece is when you watch it when you're nine precisely uh but the the second line of the stonk lyrically is it's funky and it's spunky and it's mm-hmm. impolite. You can do it by day, but it's better at night. Now, they are referring to the dance, of course, uh, rather than uh, having a boner. But then they do the dance, and the first move of the dance is thrusting your genitals forward really? uh, in a hip thrust. So, yeah. I, so I think it's pretty clear to adults watching what they're saying. So, is... But when you're a child, you just think that's a funny word that's nonsense song. Yes, indeed. And in fact, I think with the third lyric of the song, straight after that, they counter... Uh, the notion that this is a song about hard-ons with a lot of silliness. Mm. So then children do think, oh, it's just a silly word. Because then they say, you can play the fiddle with a lump of cheese, you can microwave a pussycat for your tea. Although there there are allusions in that line too, then, fiddling and pussy. It's probably problematic to ascribe that level of authorial competence to Hale and Pace. Like, to suggest that they have like an overarching set of motifs for this song. They probably just thought, let's throw some rhyming words together and we'll put a bit of sex in for the adults. And it is, in my opinion, the greatest ever Red Nose Day song. I know it's a limited that's, that's field. It's a really small It's field. a small field because most of them were covers. Uh, yeah. And like the, the ones that should have been good, like French and Saunders with Bananarama, they covered Help, so it's like... That's uh, a good song, though. It's fine. Didn't the Spice Girls do a Red Nose Day song? Yeah, or, yeah and so did Westlife, and so did Boyzone. But they're all... Co- basically, the, from the, day, the glory days of the Stonk song, the technique for a Red Nose Day song was take a song from 20 years ago that the mums and dads like, take an artist that the kids like, mm-hmm. film it in a way that is appealing to their older brother who's uh, massaging himself whilst he's watching. Yeah, uh, you're talking directly about the Saturdays doing I just can't get enough at this basically, point, aren't you? Yeah. And so you've got something for everybody right there uh, and then put Rowan Atkinson in the video. That's basically the technique <laughs> for every Red Nose Day song ever. I'm pretty sure the word stonk 
and specifically Stonker was around before that video. I'm sure I remember it being used in the playground. Well, let's yes. ask Little Miss Etymology here. Mers, please. <laughs> um, it, it, well, there are two possible courses. In Australia, being stonkered meant drunk. And in Britain, a stonker was something that was large or impressive. And um, it may have come from the game of marbles in the 19th century, where the stonk was like an onomatopoeia for the noise the balls made when they struck each other. Uh-huh. I have some recollection of a connection with, uh, what's it called when you get the chestnuts? Conkers. Uh, conkers. Conkers, yeah, with conkers. Thing, what, so you play it? conkers and say, oh, I've got oh, a stonker. That, that one's a stonker. That's I, broken. Yeah. I've got my the... stonk on. And they are, isn't it interesting? So marbles hitting each other, conkers hitting each yeah. other, they are a bit like bollocks, aren't they? That's sort of, there's always this insinuation in the background there. Yeah, all right. Very well, today, aren't they? Yeah, well, in World War Two. I'm glad it, you noticed. I worked really hard on this look. But in World War Two, stonk meant an intense artillery bombardment. Mm. So mm. are you going to say that that is like a, a big ejaculation of weaponry? Yes, that's spunking on the ground. I think what Nate says, though, you know, his point, looking back on this from the perspective of 2015, mm. family entertainment especially, now we know what was really going on in the corridors of the BBC. Mm. Uh, you know, family entertainment having this dirty allusion in it feels wrong. Well, yes, but so did literally every British comic thing that I can think of pre-1990. Yes. I mean, like, mm. you know, the Carry On movies, Peter Sellers, everything. What about Bernard and the Genie? Uh, I'm sure there's some inappropriate material in there. After Richard mm. Curtis would have been involved in the, in the Stonk Song too, wouldn't he? Oh, of course. Um, I think there's always been dirty jokes. That's sort of the seaside postcard tradition. And I... I'm tempted to say there's nothing wrong with it apart from what we've learned since, but I don't think mm. it sexualizes kids. If anything, no. um, I remember being eight, watching the Carry On movies and thinking this was hilarious that, I, of course, I didn't really understand what shagging was, but mm. the fact that I understood there were jokes about boobs in yep. it made me feel like a, like a grown-up and sharing the joke. Yeah. I didn't feel like I was going to go out and, you know, try and bone someone's leg. Yeah, you, you actually miss probably 80% of stuff but you don't even realise that mm. you've, you've missed it until you go back later yeah. which is why I think uh, children are actually quite a good filter for content because often they just don't understand like we have the child ratings on episodes of Answering This but I think unless things are very explicit they can filter it out I think it's kind of misattributing the motivation behind those things. It's suggesting that it's, it's created as family comedy, and that's why there's this sort of uh, innuendo or, or, or subterfuge. I think, actually, British comedy is that way because Brits are really, especially then, were really repressed about sex. Yes, yes. And the byproduct is, yeah, kids can enjoy it and the adults can sort of snigger behind their hands. But yeah. Yes, you're right. It's, an, it's, a, it's a sexual expression in a way, isn't it? How many songs are not about boners? That's a more pertinent question. Yeah, that is a good question. It's very patriarchal, isn't it? Um, bridge over troubled water, I don't think, is about. No, bonus. the bridge is. Uh, you oh, know. Paul Simon's oh, penis. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those bridges that that you raise when there's a boat going through. <laughs> when there's a sexy boat, the bridge goes up. Uh, Unchained melody. The chain is his penis. Right. <laughs> I did it my way. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Funeral march. <laughs> Ends him in this. Hampton Court was Henry VIII's home. The O2 Arena was the Millennium Dome. Wasn't it? I went to see you in your room, but it had been turned into a weather spoon. So I ordered a two-for-one curry and a macaroon, but they don't sell macaroons. Do they? I just ate both curries, and now I regret that. Here's a question from Dan in Shanghai who says, 
On my way to work, I have to walk past a Hugo Boss store and I've become increasingly tempted by one of their suits. It looks like it would be a good style for me and although it would be a stretch financially, I can afford it. Uh I feel like it's something worth investing in because you can't put a price on looking like a pimp-ass motherfucker. As their strapline famously says. I'm pretty sure you can. (laughs) However... Whilst not practising, I am of Jewish descent, and whenever I think of Hugo Boss, I can't help but think of their link with the Nazis. Ah, yes. It's fairly well known that Hugo Boss designed the Nazi uniforms during the Second World War. Yep, some people don't know it, but you brought it to their attention now, Dan, so well done. I'm sure they'll really appreciate that. Say what you like about the politics, at least they were dressed as pimp-ass motherfuckers, (laughs) right, Dan? Uh, I'm not sure if they've ever apologised for their contributions to the Nazi party. They have. Or that even if they have, whether have. whether that should sway my opinion. I'm not sure it should. Ollie, answer me this. Should I be thinking of giving Hugo Boss my custom? Does my bum look anti-Semitic in this? Is basically <laughs> the question that's being asked here. Well, uh, after the war, Hugo Boss said that he'd supported Hitler to save the company. And it is true, mm. if you look back through their financial records, they had gone bankrupt in the past. And it was a bit of a lifeline for them working with the Hitler Youth and the SS because suddenly they had to print a lot of outfits. A lot of uniforms there. Um, I'd imagine quite a lot of people who are associated with that regime as well. It was either do that or you and all your family are going to get it. Well, or just you wouldn't be making any money if you were making outfits for the communists at the time. I mean, it was following his business sense, you could argue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he did argue. He said it wasn't because of the ideology, it was because I was it in jobs Germany in job, 1939, right? jobs a job, yeah. But then the Nazis' jobs probably wouldn't have been done so effectively if they'd been naked or Correct. just wearing tracksuits. But, but, but so far, if you take him at his word, then that would be the same defence that Volkswagen would have, that Siemens would have, that BMW would have. That Goebbels right? would have. Indeed. <laughs> but... Um, where there, I think there is a difference with Hugo Boss is it actually came out afterwards uh, that indeed Hugo Boss had been himself a sponsor member of the SS, but Ooh. he had been ideologically wedded to Hitler and Himmler, yeah. um, that he did think the Nazis were a pretty great thing. Um, and as well as designing the uniforms and making them, Hugo Boss's a company used prisoners of war, uh, mm. a couple of hundred women from Poland as forced labourers to make the clothes. Oh, geez, And as a test for the perfumes as well, probably. I don't know. But uh, in any case, uh, you know, not the most illustrious history looking back on it. No, but although a lot of companies, when you go back into their history, there is some bad shit in most big companies, isn't there? Yeah, and actually... That's an excuse, but that is right, isn't it? And and it's emerging. We talked before about Coke making fans for the for the Germans during mm-hmm. the war uh, even some of the big American companies were helping the Nazis in a sense IBM helped manufacture what we would now call a computer system which yeah. assisted the Holocaust mm. so you know they, other companies were involved Coco Chanel herself had an affair with a Nazi officer um, but again um, she'd sold her company to a Jewish family mm-hmm. um, Hugo Boss died still owning the company still being the hugo boss and they chose not to change the name they kept that affiliation with him mm-hmm. and they only sold it in 1993 or the majority of it to an italian company whenabouts did he die he died almost straight after the war about 1947 oh, something oh, like that. okay so he didn't have that much time to really apologize properly no he didn't so this is the issue so when did they apologize when did they distance themselves from mm. it and the answer to that and you can bear this in mind dan and then act with your conscience Uh, is that uh, they didn't acknowledge their links to the Nazis at all until 1997. Ooh. Uh, And they didn't apologise until 2011. 
that just mm. looks at that point that apology is not worth doing is it it just draws attention to the fact that you didn't make it in the preceding decades i think that's right although in fairness like i say it is technically owned by a different company and in fact uh, the suits that the nazis wore weren't branded boss they were branded swastika right so mm. actually the brand itself of boss um, you're not if you buy a Hugo Boss suit wearing literally the brand of the Nazi party. Whereas, of course, you are if you're driving a VW. Oh, God. Um, Hugo Boss uh, was not actually something written on off-the-peg suits until 1977. Um, mm. So I think it isn't fair to say that if you're wearing Hugo Boss, you're wearing the brand of the Nazi party. But it is true to say that the man himself that the brand is named after never really repented for his links, mm-hmm. pretended that they weren't there. And then the company that then took his name didn't really acknowledge it or apologise it until about five years ago they really half-assed that so there you go those those are the facts i'll leave you to make up your own mind i will say uh i am as you know also jewish non-practicing and i am currently wearing a pair of hugo boss spectacles how do you feel about that Uh, do you feel your eyes are looking at things in a different way a more cruel way (laughs) i think my eyes are really anti-semitic um i think um well i did think i suppose that's what i think i think that i had second thoughts about it and that's how much it's in my head it's in my head it's there but at the end of the day i thought well these are the glasses i like the best in the shop they don't proudly boast that they're hugo boss glasses i don't have a problem with giving money to that company in theory there's no swastika on the lens i probably wouldn't wear a t-shirt that said boss on it though so the one option for dan therefore would just be to buy a suit from a different good suit maker no, I think you'll find all tailors oh, are Nazis, Helen. <laughs> yes, of course could, that's an option. But that could be the problem, couldn't it? If you, if you look back into every company's history far enough, does that mean you're not going to be able to buy anything? Yes, well, of course, all corporates of any size uh, will have dubious ethical records somewhere in the world, won't they? And that's the thing. If you say, right, I'm going to go to a, a different off-the-peg tailor, I'm mm. going to go to, and if you're listening, lawyers, I'm just choosing this example because they're famous, not because I know anything, Calvin Klein <laughs> okay. or Ralph Lauren. You know, that's an American... Uh, Ralph Lauren, there you go, American Jew, right? A lot of blood on his hands. You know, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm a Jewish guy and I want to buy a suit, I'm buying a suit for an American Jew, I can feel okay about yeah. that. But their clothes aren't all made in the States, are they? They're made in factories around the world where you don't know what the current position of the workers working for them actually is. I feel is. like that's a lot more pertinent. I mean, you, um, yeah, there's sort of symbolic value to endorsing a company that has had Nazi, uh, has supported Nazism. But, you know, if you want to make an ethical investment in something, then make it in one where where it's not made, made by children in sweatshops. It's pretty easy, isn't it? Yeah. Although Dan does live in Shanghai, so let's assume that slave labour and in the environment isn't really a primary concern for him. But then it's buying local, isn't it? <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Yes. Although it's probably been flown around the world to get back to the shop next to where it was made. But yes, yeah, yeah good point. Fl- they fly over to Europe to get the price tags put on and then back. <laughs> well, on that happy note, uh, it's the end of this episode of Answer Me This. It certainly is. But please do supply your questions for subsequent episodes of Answer Me This using the contact details on our website. Answermethispodcast.com You can also follow the links there to uh, find us on twitter and facebook that's a nice little um, project for you isn't it plus here's a little bit of extra ollie man podcast news for you oh. uh, over the summer i am taking the reins at the guardians tech weekly podcast very exciting i didn't realize they recorded it on horseback <laughs> <laughs> um so yes if you're interested in uh, gadgets and games and social media news and how technology is generally shaping our lives you- but more importantly if you're interested in hearing ollie talk more yes do subscribe to the guardians tech weekly podcast on iTunes or Downcast or whatever you use. Oh, oh, and uh, on the day after this podcast is released, I am going to be on Radio 4's News Quiz, which will be available that's afterwards on their Friday on Night, their Comedy, Friday Night Comedy Podcast. Yes, that is, that's two exciting pieces of podcast news. And finally, we will be able to check whether I can convincingly pass for Sandy Toxfig, as <laughs> deep in the annals of Answer Me This one listener suggested yeah, I that, could. you'll both be on the same show. If you can't tell us apart, then the answer is yes. Yeah, uh, and remember, if you want to support this show, uh, either directly with a cash donation, that would be fine. Yeah, uh, sure. 
or if you would like to do it through the um, through the Merkin of buying our um, classic episodes <laughs> the uh, and our Lovely. albums and uh, other things, uh, go to answermethisstore.com to do that. And thank you very much if you do. Or just tell somebody to listen to the podcast. Someone who is receptive to that information, not yeah. someone who's going to hate it. Yeah, that's true. If, if you can't afford to give us any money, then definitely just tell your friends. That's yeah. a good thing you can do. Or your enemies. Yeah. Given that I'm not going to be on any media giants in the next week, if you see me wandering just constantly up and down Tottenham Court, I just come and say hello. Buy, buy me a drink. Yeah. Buy me a cup of tea. Yeah. yeah. Or a milkshake. Martin likes pink oh, milkshakes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Martin brings all the milkshakes to the yard. I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> bye! bye.